Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. My name is Timon Benson. I'm the lead pastor here at City Reach Oakton. So great to have you here today. And um, it's our prayer that you'd be blessed and that God would speak to you. Um, on Wednesday this past week, we had a great time at our PVC night. We, we uh, had a great time of community where we had shared a meal together. And then we prayed together and we looked at our vision coming up for the next season We're really excited about the Back to the Bible campaign and hope you get on board with that. Uh, Really excited that after today's service, um, Pastor Graham is going to be having a a special meeting for our children's ministry workers uh, where we'll be talking about kids' ministry, talking about what's happening in our children's ministry. So if you're part of our children's ministry, make sure you come along for lunch and stay for lunch and we'll be looking at that after, after the service today. But we're getting into the book of Ephesians today. So open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 if you don't have them open already. Well, in the West, there is a crisis that is shaking the foundations of society. It is a crisis of identity. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book on preaching, he outlines five narratives that are commonly taught by uh, the West And one of those narratives is what he calls the identity narrative. This is a narrative that is taught over and over again to people in the West. He writes that ancient cultures or traditional cultures today, the way that people gained their identity or the way that people gain their identity is by sublimating their desires for the good of the other people in the community and the honor that then is bestowed upon them. Uh, For example, when I was a kid, uh, people would stay in a loveless marriage. And why would they stay in a loveless marriage? For the good of the children, because it was seen as a good thing to do. You were seen as a good person if you did that. But Keller Wright goes on to write this. He says, Western secularism, however, has reversed the ancient approach. Our identity is not discovered outside in our duties or our roles, but only inside, in our desires and dreams. In this view of self-worth, it comes from the dignity we bestow upon ourselves as we express and fulfill our desires, regardless of what the community might say. We must be ourselves, and you probably heard that expression, be yourself, regardless of societal expectations. Our society's main heroic narrative is that of the individual standing up and being true to himself or herself over society's opposition. And this is why a couple of years ago, if you were following the media, Caitlyn Jenner was awarded as being a hero. And she received, or he received, the Women of the Year Award. Now, what was the brave thing that they had done? Well, what they had done is they'd come out and expressed their authentic self. They were being true to themselves, regardless of what anyone thought. And you see, this is what our society now deems to be a supreme act of bravery. This is what our society considers to be where you find your identity. Your identity comes by looking down into your heart, discovering who you feel yourself to be, and then expressing that regardless of what anyone else thinks. It's a real idea of that you are the the author of your own destiny. You are the sovereign over your own world. 
Uh, this modern narrative, as I've said before, is taught in places like Disney's movie Frozen, where Elsa, you know, in this great apocalyptic moment, she's suppressing who she really is, and then she lets it go, and then she, you know, she's no longer the good girl that everyone wants her to be. This powerful narrative is behind most popular songs, most popular movies, and is actually behind most of the political dialogue that we see today. The only problem is that an identity built on this foundation is likely to fall over. Tim Keller argues, listen to this, he says, you cannot get your significance through self-recognition. Self-recognition must come in great measure from others. In the end, you can't name yourself or bless yourself. You can't ultimately say to yourself, I don't care that anyone, everyone around me thinks I'm a monster. I love myself. And that's all that matters. That would not convince us of our worth unless we were mentally out unsound. We need someone from the outside to say we're of great worth. And the greater the worth of the person telling us, the more powerful the recognition is to our identity formation. He goes on to write this. So if we try to authenticate and validate ourselves, we place ourselves in an infinite loop of self-delusion, look at this, that will either lead to narcissism or self-loathing, which is exactly, I put forward to you, what we see in our society. People who are very narcissistic, we live in a very narcissistic society where people make grandiose claims about who they are and what they want to accomplish, but we also live in a society where so many people struggle with despair and anxiety. But this crisis of identity is not just a modern phenomenon. It actually goes back to Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of humanity. In Genesis chapter 1, after God created man and woman in his image, what was the very first thing that God did? Well, we read in Genesis 1 verse 28 that he blessed them. This is really significant. Before he told them that he wanted them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, he blessed them. Now, I think this is very significant because it's showing us from the very opening chapter of the Bible, it's setting up this pattern that our doing comes out of our being, that we don't work for blessing, but rather we work out of blessing. We are blessed, and then we work out of blessing. And in Genesis chapter 2, we read how God formed Adam from the dust of the earth, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. What does that mean? Whose, whose face did Adam, would Adam have seen? Whose, whose was the first face that Adam would have seen? He would have seen the face of God shining down at him. We read of how Adam and Eve walked in the garden in the cool of the evening. So they enjoyed fellowship with the Father. They enjoyed fellowship with the Son. They were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But in Genesis chapter 3, that all came crashing down when Adam and Eve sinned against God. They became spiritual orphans. They became spiritually dead. They were cut off from relationship with God. And now, what tends to happen is we all seek to build our identity around our works. We try and work so that we can be blessed, so we can feel the sense of identity and significance and security that was supposed to come from God. 
And so whether that be from if you're over 50, you will probably fall into the honor narrative where you'll try and be an honorable, upstanding member of society, or whether that be playing into the modern narrative of trying to be true for you, to yourself. It's the same. You're trying to get your identity from your works. But the good news is, is that there is another place to get your identity, and that is from the work of Christ, the gospel. And in the book of Ephesians, this is an amazing book, as we're going to be studying it, before Paul speaks to the Ephesians about what they are to do in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he actually reminds them who they are in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And in this opening chapter that we are going to be looking at today, the first 14 verses, Paul opens the letter in the normal way in verses 1 and 2. He addresses, he gives his credentials and then he addresses his readers. But he says this amazing thing in verse 3. Look down in your Bibles in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. I just want you to sit on that verse for a moment. If you're a Christian, if you're in relationship with Christ, you are blessed. How amazing is that? Now, there are additional blessings that you get through obedience. There are conditional promises in the Bible. John 15 says that if we abide in Christ and his words abide in us, then we will ask whatever we wish and it will be done for us. That's the blessing of answered prayer. Or as 1 Peter 2 says, if you crave after the pure spiritual milk, you will grow. So if you get back to the Bible, this this term with us and you read your Bible, you can expect to grow as a Christian. These are conditional promises with conditional blessings. But I want you to get this, people. The core of blessing of your identity, of who you are, was set the moment you trusted in Jesus. You are blessed. And so you don't have to base your identity on your achievement or other people's approval or striving for success to be the best. You are blessed by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, unfortunately, part of the process of actually growing up as a Christian is that we all need to grow up and embrace who God says we are in His Word. You know, part of the problem is, is when we become Christians, we've lived our whole life as spiritual orphans, defining ourselves by our works. And when we become believers, it's like someone doesn't press the delete button. We have all this faulty programming in our minds. And so we need to engage in the process of what Paul calls the renewal of our minds, living according to the truth of what God has said. But I want you, oh, please, let's drink in deeply these words. You are blessed. Regardless, do you realize how amazing this is? Regardless of the week you've had, you're blessed. Regardless of whether you read your Bible every day or not, you're blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. 
Regardless of if you live the perfect life as a Christian or not, you are blessed. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. This is amazing. And so what we're going to do is I just want us to drink in deeply this passage today. Usually I preach a lot of messages that give you a lot of conviction. Hopefully this will be a lot of encouragement. This will be like, hopefully this will be like um, a warm bath, if you like that. I like warm baths, hot baths. This will be a, I was trying to think of a good metaphor. That's probably not the best metaphor. But this will be a time where you just breathe in fresh air and see the beauty of God's grace. You see, verses 3 to verse 14 are actually one long sentence in Greek. And what Paul does in this long sentence is he takes us to the heights and shows us the vast spiritual riches that are ours in Christ. So let's enjoy the view. The first spiritual blessing that we have is we are blessed. (laughs) This is amazing, guys. We are blessed with the Father's love. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, even as He, that's the Father, chose us in Him, that's Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Now, as soon as people hear these verses, many of our eyes are drawn to the words chosen and predestined, and it can cause many of us to become unstuck, and it can cause us to travel down many theological rabbit trails. You know, this one time when Tegan and I were just newly married, we were having this discussion over whether light travels in waves or in particles, and we got into quite a heated discussion. I think I said that it was traveling, it travels in waves, and she said it travels in particles. And this was 93 before, or 94 before the internet and Google. And so we had to go and crack open one of our science textbooks from high school. And you know what we discovered? Light travels both in waves and in particles. You see, there are many things that are not contradictory, but are complementary. Is God three persons and one being or essence? Yes. Is Jesus fully God and fully man? Yes. Uh, Is man completely responsible for his choices, but is God completely sovereign? Yes. Now that answer may not satisfy you, and I know there's a whole heap of other discussion that we could have about the sovereignty of God and human responsibility and how these two interact. But I think one of the things that happens is we miss the really important thing that these verses is teaching us which is actually about the nature of the Father's love. You see, I found that for many believers, while they never doubt the love of Jesus, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Many people do doubt whether God, the Father, actually loves them. Now, for many people, this is due to the fact that they've had a very lousy human father and we tend to project upon our heavenly father, the image of our earthly father. And if that's you today, I, I just my heart goes out to you. Um, I would just say to you, allow God, your heavenly father, to redeem and really inform your understanding of his fatherhood from his word. But I also think this, 
I think that many Christians, even the ones who've had great fathers, do live in suspicion over whether God, the Father, truly loves them. Over whether he really, really loves them. Over whether they can really draw near to him and trust him. And this may come from a deeply flawed understanding of salvation. Let me put up two statements on the screen, and I want to ask you the question, which one of these two statements is actually true? Here's the first statement. God the Father sent Jesus to redeem us so he could love us. Is that true? Or, God the Father sent Jesus because he loves us and wanted to redeem us. Now, you may not pick up the subtle difference in these statements, but the difference is huge. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, The Whole Christ, writes this. He says, the subtle danger here should be obvious. If we speak, get this, of the cross of Christ as the cause of the Father's love, God loves us because Jesus died for us, we imply that behind the cross and apart from it, he may not actually love us at all. He needs to be paid a ransom price in order to love us. If it required the death of Christ to persuade him to love us, oh, Father, if I die, you will begin to love them. How can we ever be sure that the Father loves us deep down with an everlasting love? You see, you might be suspicious over whether the Father really loves you, which will make you wonder whether you should really draw near to him or not. But get this, these verses remind us that he chose you in Christ, before the foundation of the world. In love, it says, in love, he adopted you, he predestined you to be adopted as his child. David Platt, in his book, Follow Me, describes the process of adopting his son, Caleb. He writes that the process of international adoption can be long and in many ways grueling. Some have described it as a paperwork pregnancy. You virtually have to demonstrate to two governments that you have the ideal family. Well, David and his wife, Heather, filled out all the necessary paperwork and did all the required physicals. And after they did that, that took a process of about a year, they began the long, agonizing process of waiting. Every single day, David writes, we thought about our child, wondering if it would be a boy or a girl, and longing for the day when we could hold that little one in our arms. Finally, about a year later, I received an email. It was a picture of a boy, nine months old, abandoned at birth, in need of a home, a mum and a dad. I printed out the picture and ran to show it to Heather. We laughed, we cried, we rejoiced, we prayed. And within two weeks, we were on a plane headed to Kazakhstan. It was the day after Valentine's Day in 2007. Upon arrival in our son's city, we were immediately taken to his orphanage where the director met us and escorted us into a small room. She shared all sorts of medical information about our son and then it happened. A woman rounded the corner with a precious 10-month-old boy in her arms. Words can't really describe the immediate swell of emotion that filled the room. The woman handed him to us, and for the first time, Caleb looked into the eyes of a mum and a dad. Well, for the next four weeks, Platt writes, we visited Caleb in his orphanage. We held him, we fed him, we sang to him, we laughed with him, we crawled all over the floor with him. 
until the day came for us to adopt him. We were instructed on what to wear, what to say, and what to expect as we stood before the Kazakh judge. Our hearts were pounding in that courtroom as the proceedings played out. After a number of questions and testimonies concerning Caleb's background, the judge pronounced, I grant this application of adoption, and this child now belongs to David and Heather Platt. We left the room with tears streaming from our eyes, ready to pick up Caleb from his orphanage for the last time. Platt writes, the parallels between Caleb's story and the gospel story are many. He says, adoption like this begins with the parent's initiative. It's not the child's idea. Before Caleb was even born in Kazakhstan, he had a mum and a dad working to adopt him. While Caleb was laying alone at night in an orphanage in Kazakhstan with no one to care for him. He had a mum and a dad planning to adopt him. And then one day when Caleb was placed in the arms of his mum and his dad, he had no idea of all that had been done completely apart from any initiative in him to bring him to that point. It seems obvious, but it is especially important. This precious 10-month-old boy did not, Platt writes, invite us to come to him in Kazakhstan to bring him into our family. He didn't even know to ask for such a thing. No, this orphan child became our treasured son because of a love that was beyond his imagination and completely outside of his control. He did not pursue us. For he was completely unable to do so. Instead, we pursued him. Friends, this is the heart of Christianity. And we are prone to miss it. The reality of the gospel is that we did not become God's children ultimately because of any initiative in us. Instead, before we were born, the Father was working to adopt us. While we were alone in the depth of our sin... God the Father was working to save us. This is the Father's love. A love beyond your wildest imaginations and completely beyond your control. You are loved by the Father with this amazing, wild love. Before you spoke a word, He was singing over you. He has been so, so good to you. What amazing love of the Father that He would have chosen you and me before the foundation of the world. Unless you understand that, I think you will, you will doubt whether He is really good and whether He really loves you. Well, secondly, not only are we loved by the Father, but we are blessed with the Son's redemption. In verse 7, we read, In Him we have redemption. Through his blood. Now throughout this passage, Paul clearly asserts that all of the blessings that we receive come through Christ. They come through being in him. Uh, you see, this phrase is repeated a whopping 12 times in just 14 verses. But in this verse in particular, he points out the redemption that comes through the Son. Now what does he mean when he uses the word redemption? Well, in the ancient world, if you went to the city square, you would see this slave market. And there would be these slaves there. People would become slaves, maybe because they couldn't pay a debt, and so they would 
sell themselves into slavery. There were other reasons. Maybe they were captured, a captured people. And they were put in this slave market. And in order for a slave to be set free, the ransom price had to be paid so that they could be redeemed and they could be set free from their slavery. They owed a debt. It's a little bit like how we today, we can watch you know, movies about people being taken hostage and uh, kidnappers demand that a ransom be paid and if the ransom is paid, then the kidnappers will let the hostage go. Well, this is what it was like for a slave in the first century. They were enslaved and helpless unless someone came and paid their ransom price. Well, Paul applies this metaphor to our situation. Sin had taken us hostage and enslaved us. And the wages of sin is death, or the payment is death. And we couldn't pay that payment. But on the cross, Jesus died for us, shedding his blood so that we might go free, so that we might no longer be slaves to sin. What a blessing. You are no longer a slave of sin if you're a Christian. You no longer have to keep on repeating the same sins over and over and over again. You are free. The price has been paid. But also, Paul says, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In other translations, the word forgiveness is translated the remission of our trespasses. When you remit something, you cancel it or remove it. Because of Christ's death, there is no more penalty to be paid for our sins. They have been remitted. They have been canceled. And there are different words for the word sin in the Bible. And in this verse, Paul actually uses the word trespasses. Now, this has a particular emphasis. The word trespass speaks about the violation of God's commandments. And so he says, this is amazing, that we have the forgiveness of our trespasses, of our, violation, of our ways that we violate God's commandments. So not only are we set free from sin, but all of the ways that we have ever and will ever violate God's commandments has been paid for by Jesus. You know, when I was a young adult, I used to think about the gospel this way. I used to think, well, I came to Jesus and uh, Jesus has now uh, forgiven me of all my past sin, but I better be a good little Christian because let's say I walk out the door and I sin and then I get run over by a bus and I go to heaven with an unconfessed sin, I might get into heaven. That's how I used to think. But the truth is, actually, that Jesus, by virtue of his redemption, of his blood, he has actually paid for all of my transgressions, my past, my present, my future sins. And I was praying for you before you came in today because I believe that probably there were some people who came in this morning and you've come in with a whole heap of guilt on your conscience. Guilt of things that you've done this week. And the beautiful, beautiful news for you is this. Is that they have already been paid for by the blood of Jesus. So you can go and run back to Jesus. Confess your sins and you will receive grace and mercy in your time of need. How good is that? But not only... Wah, this redemption of the Son, my friends, is so amazing because it not only frees me from my sinful nature and it not only cancels all of my trespasses that are against me, but it has cosmic proportions to it. Look down in verse 8. 
He says, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. See, Jesus' death on the cross wasn't just for your own personal salvation, my friends. But it was to lift the curse that was placed over the entire world. Romans 8, Paul says that this creation is groaning for its liberation. And there will come a day when the curse is lifted in the new heavens and the new earth. And death will be no more and sin will be no more. And everything will come under the reign and rule of Christ. And everything will be as it should be. So do you notice, let let me give it to you in in three little P's, all right? You ready to write these down? He forgives us, the work of Christ delivers us from the power of sin. You got that one? Everyone say power of sin. Power of sin, you're not too excited about that, but let me tell you, that's exciting news. He's delivered us from the power of sin. He's delivered us from the penalty of sin. Can you say that? The penalty of sin. But also, he will ultimately deliver us from the presence of sin. In the new heavens and the new earth, when everything comes under the reign of King Jesus, things are messed up now. Things will be messed up, and we will have some trouble in this messy, sinful world. But our hope is that in the fullness of time, because of the work of Jesus, All things will come under his lordship and authority. Aren't you so grateful? Things are broken now. But everything will come under the lordship of Christ one day. And this this is the hope that we have. Paul says that all creation groans for this hope. And we also groan inwardly as we await the redemption of our bodies. Our bodies, some of our bodies don't work as they should. But one day we will have new bodies in the new heavens and the new earth and all things will be under Christ. How amazing is this blessing? So we have the Father's love. We have the Son's redemption. What a blessing. And we also have the Spirit's assurance. Verse 11. In Him we... Who is the we that Paul is speaking of here? Well, I think it's the end of verse 12. We who are the first to hope in Christ. I think this refers to Jewish believers. We who are the first to hope in Christ have obtained an inheritance. Now, for Jewish people, when they think of inheritance, they think of the the land. But for Christians, for believers... Our inheritance is much bigger than just the land. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that the meek will inherit the earth. We, have, we will be part of the new heavens and the new earth. This is an amazing inheritance that awaits every single one of us if we're believers. What an inheritance. You know, my dad has three farms and he has three sons. And I'm hoping one day that I might inherit one of those farms. I don't think I've got much hope of that because my little brother's the farmer and he, and he seems to be working really hard at that. But, 
But there is this sort of, a, there's this sort of hope that maybe, maybe one day, you know, I might have this farm awaiting me, and I'll sell it off and make it into a subdivision, and like, yeah, you know. Uh. <laughs> Don't tell my dad that. But anyways, <laughs> there is this, there's this hope of this inheritance that is to come. We have an inheritance that is to come. Peter says that's reserved for us in heaven, that, that nothing can destroy, and nothing won't spoil for us. We will be part of God's kingdom, his eternal kingdom. And then in verse 13, he says, in him you also, now he's talking to the Ephesians, the Gentiles. Now, what we're going to see in the book of Ephesians is that one of the main themes of the book of Ephesians is that Jews and Gentiles are reconciled together in the body of Christ. In chapter 2, we're going to see that the dividing wall of hostility has been done away with so that Jew and Gentile are part of the one body. They're part of the one new man in Christ. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, it was only prophets, priests, and kings who received the Holy Spirit. And it was always for a purpose, and the Holy Spirit could be taken from them. This is why David prayed, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me, in Psalm 51. But the promise of the new covenant was that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all of God's people. That we would all have the Holy Spirit. And that He would be our permanent possession. What an amazing gift the Holy Spirit is. You see, on the day of Pentecost, two things happened. The believers were filled with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus received a new body, the church. The church is the body of Christ. We we are ones who are possessed by Christ through the person of the Holy Spirit who's come to indwell us. Charles Price, he says in his book, Christ for Real, he says that growing up, when he thought about salvation, he thought salvation involved three things. It involved a ticket. I have my ticket to heaven. I have my certificate, which says Charles Price is saved. And I have my catalog, which is the Bible. I'm to look through the catalog and to see all the things that I am to do. And many of us approach the Christian life that way. That God is up in heaven, and I'm here on earth, and I have to try and live the Christian life and do the Christian life in my own strength. Charles Price says that will never work. The hope of glory is actually Christ in you. The new covenant means is a completely different way of living to the old covenant. We no longer serve in the old way of the written code. We serve in the new way of the spirit. The normal Christian life is a spirit-filled life. The normal Christian life is supposed to be something that's supernatural. We tend to look at someone and we say, look at them, they've got the fruit of the spirit because they're a really patient person. No, they're just a patient person in themselves. That's not anything spiritual about that. But true fruit True, the true fruit of the Spirit comes about because of the activity and working of the Holy Spirit in our lives as He produces the life of Christ in us. 
So are you thirsty here today? Jesus said, come to me all who are thirsty. And I will give streams or rivers of living water. The Christian life is not supposed to be lived out of religious duty and effort. It's supposed to be lived out of the power and presence of another who lives his life through you. It is no longer I who lives, Christ said, but Christ who lives in me and the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who came and died for me. It is him living his life in us that makes the difference. If this church can be explained by our programs and our talents and our abilities, then something is wrong because the early church was only explained by the fact that the Holy Spirit had come to indwell them and they were now filled. Whereas before they were wimps, now they were bold. Whereas before they were unloving and trying to be the greatest, now they were filled with love and generosity and giving away their possessions and selling it and giving to anyone who had need. So Jesus says, let all who are thirsty come to me and drink and I will give you rivers of living water. And John in that passage in John 7 says that he was speaking of the Spirit whom had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. When Jesus went to the cross, he died to cancel our sins away. But that's only part of what he came to do. Then on Pentecost, he came to fill us with the presence of God. So that we would walk by the Spirit. And we'd produce the fruits of the Spirit. And we'd live for God. Charles Price said that in his preaching, or, or he would hear preachers and they would talk about how you need to be dedicated to God. Dedicate yourself to God. And then one preacher one day got up and said, you need to consecrate yourself. And that sounded even more spiritual. So he did that. Do you know what it says in the New Testament? It says, we don't dedicate ourselves, we die to ourselves. The process that God is into is he's into 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He's put this treasure in, in jars of clay. And he's into breaking down our jar of clay so that the life we always carry about in our life the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in us. I don't know about you guys. I want this church not to be explained by my gifts and my abilities. I want this church to only be explained because there is a Holy Spirit who is real who's working in our hearts, whom we are dying to ourselves and we're allowing him to live in us and produce a quality of joy and love and peace in this fellowship, which is, can't be substituted. It can't be manufactured by people out there because it comes from God himself. I think every Christian heart, every Christian heart yearns for Acts 2 and those early days of the church where it shone 
so great. Church, Sean, so great. But here's the thing, is that the Spirit is actually the guarantee that we have this future inheritance. When you become a Christian, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, I used to think that this sealing was like, and maybe you think this too, is like, you know, you put a lid on a jar, you know, and like you seal in the jar so you keep all the air out. That's how I thought it was. But actually, the word seal refers to an image. Like when they had a document, they would get hot wax and they would get a seal and they would put the hot wax on the seal and they would seal the document. And this official seal demonstrated that whatever was in this document, whatever was promised in this document would be delivered on because of that person had put their seal on it. If you're a Christian, it's the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. That God has marked you out and said, you will inherit what I have promised you because you have the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. See, this is very, very important, my friends. If you do not have the Spirit, you do not have Christ. Unless a man be born again or a person be born again, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. You must have come to that point where you recognize that you are nothing in yourself and you say, God, I need you in my life. And then when he comes in, he brings joy, peace. He does bring a change. There is a change that occurs in your life. When you are born again, you do change. Paul calls it new creation. If anyone be in Christ, new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. So we are blessed. We're blessed with the Father's love. We're blessed with the Son's redemption. We are blessed with the Spirit's assurance. What blessing do you need today? Did you come in really lonely? Maybe you need to be assured of the Father's love for you. Did you come in weighed down with guilt upon your conscience? Maybe you need to know the Son's redemption, that His blood has cleansed you of all sin and you can confess your sin. Did you come in thirsty? Your soul's thirsty? Maybe you need to surrender and die to yourself so you, the streams of living water of the Spirit can flow through your life and you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, do you know, how do we, how do we embrace our identity as this identity that God has given us? Well, it's interesting. In these, in these verses, there is this little phrase that's repeated three times. At the end of verse 6, or verse 6, it says, to the praise of his glory. In verse 12, it says, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, it says, to the praise of his glory. Let's not forget that right at the very beginning, this is actually a worship. This is a doxology. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's worshiping. I think what we're supposed to do with this is the way that we embrace our identity as God's children is we worship Him. We marvel at His glorious grace that the Father would save us, 
and plan to save us, that the Son would redeem us with His own blood and that the Spirit would come and indwell us, giving us this amazing inheritance. And let me tell you, I think that when a church, when a church gets full of people, not just some people, but full of people who are just, can't get over the fact that God would bless them like this, that God would do this, that He would plan their salvation, that He would send His Son to redeem them, that He would send His Spirit to indwell them. When they marvel at that, that's when joy breaks out. Joy inexpressible. Because I was once in darkness, but now I'm part of His marvelous light. (laughs) So do you want joy? Do you want joy? Pathway to joy is to bless God for his redemption. The Father planned it, the Son executed it, and the Spirit applies it as he works in our lives. Let me pray. Oh, Father, there's probably many thirsty hearts here this morning. And would you come and, as you promised in your word, rain your water, your living water upon them. Father, I just pray, Father, for our church as we go back to the Bible and we read Ephesians. We're not doing this out of religious duty, but we're doing this because we are blessed Father, you've been so good to us. You've planned this salvation in eternity past. Before we were even born in love, you adopted us. You planned to adopt us as your children in Christ. We thank you for the redemption that we have in the Son. And we thank you, Father, for the presence and person of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray for thirsty hearts this morning that as they surrender to the Lordship of Christ and die to self and depend on Him that you would fill them with your love and your grace and your joy and I pray this in Jesus' powerful name you are such a good Father thank you for your love let's stand together